Alexander Bird, your books. I like I like putting them in front of the screen. I'm halfway through this one. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Synthism. And yeah. Um, we were going to talk today about Tantra, whatever the hell that is. I Why don't you define Tantra first, though, and then you do the questions? Yeah, exactly, exactly what so I was... misunderstood, this beautiful concept. Incredibly exactly, so there's, there's a kind of etymology that, that has to do with weaving, sewing together. That's part of the, uh, the etymology. And also stretching, I noticed, when I was looking yeah. into it. Um, yeah. It means generally a technique or practice, but, uh, and it's normally associated with, with, with sex in the West, but that's actually something more like neo chantra because yeah. it, could, it could be all kinds of practices right it has not it's not specifically related to fucking let's say um, it's more about our western obsession with sexuality than, than it does about original tantra doesn't it exactly so yeah. so the western the western obsession is with sort of opening this serpent power kundalini shakti or whatever the hell uh you know there's it has it's such an elastic term and it's such a, a, an abused term and it's such a it seems to be it seems to me to have, have taken on almost a demonic quality uh in the west we in the west are so obsessed with instant gratification yeah that we thought of tantra the way we think of everything else in the west which is essentially we're gonna colonize and we're gonna appropriate and then we're gonna extract instant value of whatever we find. Yeah. We call that exploitation. We're an exploitative culture. We're so fostered to think exploitation. So we run into something like Tantra, a long, huge, rich tradition of thinking from the East and of practice. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then we think that Tantra is just gonna be another short route to our desires. So yeah, a fast, a, fast, uh, a fast route to enlightenment. Which is very Which is what you and I are so people and and uh, and and leads people to, as you say, ex exploitation in the in the sense of wanting to exploit the, the body's natural power and the maybe in the way you might mine for uranium or something, you know. Exactly. Exactly. To and, get and, power and, to get, you know. Mm -hmm. Right, and that is why in our first book, The Netocrats, which is the first book in the Victorica trilogy that we wrote what eight, 18 years ago, we did a very important concept that's going to catch up with us eventually in the digital age, and we call this concept imploitation, mm -hmm. which is the opposite of exploitation. Funny enough, there wasn't even a word for this. What we mean with imploitation is that we're going to have to learn that the real value in something is actually investing in it and keeping it as it is for as long as possible, which I think is fundamental to Tantra. So that means in mm -hmm. our age today, you know, the current obsession that we don't grow up any longer, our culture is infantilized, and the whole journey from childhood to adulthood is gonna be have to be relearned. It's gonna be the most important exercise we do over the next 100 years, is to adultify society again. Well, you and I love Jordan Peterson. I always point out what Jordan is great at and what Sertica is not doing in our work, and what probably you're doing with your work too, Andrew, is that we try to teach people the, the beauty of adultification, that we have to become adults again and no longer stay children. And this ironically means Tantra is the exact opposite of the way it's been presented in the West. This is not a short route to pleasure or, or, yeah. or you know, how, how you get access to something you want so badly, but you don't want to learn it. You don't want to go through any trouble. You want it now, now, now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of Buddhist practice. Um, uh, I, li I lived in a monastery for a year. Uh, I, started off, I started off doing Zen and then I, then I, then I got interested in, in Vajrayana. There was a great deal of intense study, intense meditation, intense practices before you could even kind of approach Tantra, right? Um, yeah. and, and I'm not even sure right now that I've approached Tantra. So, so I, 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 the only way I can really you know, talk about it is, is, is uh, let's say, with a bit of humility. Well, I think, that, I think this is the thing. When we think about ourselves as children and adults, it's the same thing. That's exactly. When you say you've never reached it or you're not sure you reached it, well, you have, but you didn't stay there. And that's exactly the point with understanding what it means to be an adult. We are always children. In a way, Christianity is right. We're always the children of God, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we're always the children of our ancestors. They know better than we do. That's what religion is. But you have obviously reached Tantra precisely because you have this humility about it. But you go back to Tantra, you can stay in Tantra, and then you have to return to being non-Tantric. It's not a state you can stay in. That's, that's a complete misunderstanding of Tantra. We, mm -hmm. can, we can go into Tantra. I, I talk about it like 
when I want to go into libidinal state, I probably get out of sexuality. I push that energy into my head. And then I can, for example, think and write and be creative for a few weeks or so. And then I can go back into the other state. And I think that is fundamental to understanding Tantra. So I, I agree with you that you're not in the state of Tantra, but you obviously under, you, you are Tantric. Obviously you are Tantric. Well, my, my, my orientation towards the world uh, is, is probably headed in that direction. That's how I would look at it. That's what being tantric means. Okay. Otherwise, you'd have to die to be permanently tantric. Mm-hmm. While you're alive, this is what you are, right? So the humility goes with being tantric. The humility with growing up is also understanding you allow yourself to be a little child now and then because the child inside of you will always pop out. But you, you take on the role or pretending you're a grown-up, and that is the beginning of being an adult. Mm-hmm. And then your behavior will become adult. That will strengthen your self-confidence, that you can't be adult when you have to. Okay. So you said Tantra was a state. What did you mean by that? I'm, I'm, I'm relating Tantra to the Tantric exercises. Uh, we had to create a whole new philosophy for this for the West. And what I do, for example, when I use the word exploitation. I do it to teach Westerners what Tantra really is. So we, we invent new vocabulary that makes sense to us. Implotation obviously being a Latin word. And implotation is precisely, instead of exploiting the situation when the situation is in front of you, which you're trained to do with Western sexualities, like if I get a chance to fuck this and I get an okay, I'll fuck it now and I'll come as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And from this, we learn that everything we do in our lives, we will have higher value if it can be tantric. This starts with farming. This starts with agriculture. I mean, what will be the first thing you teach somebody when you finally have access to so much knowledge and information because you can store knowledge and information outside of your own brain, you can write it down. The first thing we did, we we could write, we invented written language in Mesopotamia, was that we started to making diaries of collections of grain so that we can learn that instead of eating this grain right now, starve a bit, plant the grain in the earth, and within six months, you're gonna have a harvest that's gonna be way bigger than anything you could have picked up by walking around as a nomad for years. And suddenly, instead of spending you know, three hours in the morning to get a few grains, you just have the grain right in front of you, you can have a larger population, and we can therefore create a civilization. So this insight is that basically, you teach the kid that, okay, if you don't eat this now, if you invest it in the future, you'll get 10 times more. Mm-hmm. That is essentially what Tantra is. Tantra is essentially... Uh, I, like the, I like the analogy to farming. That's, that's a good... That's yeah, exactly. Good. So, 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 so by employing the value now, it's all about the time access. Mm-hmm. This is why it's so important in, in religion to understand the value of time. Um, if you invest now, you're going to get 10 times more in the future. Meaning that Tantra essentially says that if you don't come now, if you don't get the orgasm, the little death now, if you keep that in, you learn from sexuality that, oh, my mind will go, wow, and I will be much more productive and much more creative in my life. And we can apply this to everything. We learn this. We just push the sexuality into our heads instead, and we get libidinal energy, which motivates us to do amazing things. Mm-hmm. This is how I tie Tantra into the history of civilization. It's just that it's, it's the Indian or whatever. It's, it's, it's the term used in the East for practices to teach people to be this. And of course, you teach the children to be adults, but you then teach the adults among those adults who want to teach them how to be spiritual. And this is exactly the exercise of priests and monks and nuns who then practice Tantra to perfection. Mm-hmm. Go back to your story. Okay. What uh, did you do? You did Zen, for example. Uh, yeah, a lot of meditation yep. um, in a Rinzai tradition. I mean, a lot is very relative because some people spend, uh, you know, a third of their life sitting in Zazen. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I spent my 20s doing Zen retreats. And, but I, also, I was also very interested in, uh, in, in uh, the, te- the writings of Chogam Trumpa. And I, and I read sort of all of his stuff. And uh, that's I what, love got, it. I love that's it. what yeah. got me very interested in, I guess, the, the magical aspect of, of spiritual. I, I would call it magic, not in this sense of the search for exalted experiences, but, um, but the exaltation of uh, ordinary life, so to speak. Yeah, it is. It is. Libido. Libido. How can yeah. you get more libido into your life, into your current life? Yeah. 
you can only you can only understand certain things once you've known other things before that that's exactly how education works it's like you 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 apply the education to where you're at right now and then when you learn uh and as you learn you're ready to take on more knowledge and if you if you jump the queue too quickly you will not understand a thing you will completely misunderstand it and actually education become destructive mm -hmm. i mean it's the if you look at life that way it is you go from child to adult and you go from adult into the divine and actually the divine is when you die right so so the this journey means that there's a lot of knowledge along the way you will learn but you will not get it and of course this is what you discover when you turn 50 years old and you discover that oh yeah i read this when i was 30 i didn't get it now i finally can understand it so so this is essential i think to tend to acknowledge is that you can only apply the knowledge to the level where you're at. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't get it. You don't get it. And actually, the misunderstandings can be very destructive, incredibly destructive. So, you know, the, it, ultimately, I would say that the biggest mistakes of human history are always when we allowed the little boys and girls to play gods. So we could say that Tondra has great potential for uh, what's called in the Buddhist tradition, Rudra, which means embodying the ego completely, you know, becoming fully evil uh, in some sense. You yeah, you go explosion? beyond good and evil, I would say. You, you would yeah. understand how things actually work. Uh, this is exactly why I'm so interested in Dogshan and Zen, because mm -hmm. Dogshan and Zen, we attribute Buddhism to them, but, but these, these, these sort of titles, these sort of boxing in of religion actually only occurred in the 19th century when the West arrived to the East and, and Westerners decided to, you know, bunch them in and call it Hinduism and Buddhism and they allow the Chinese to have Taoism and Confucianism and suddenly they have these four titles and they could throw them on things when actually Dogshan is Dogshan, Zen is Zen, Shan in China is Shan. You yeah. don't attribute Buddhism to any of them because they're actually mixes. And why I'm interested in Dogshan is because it is the mixture of the Persian and the Indian. Mm -hmm. The Persian here being Zoroastrianism and the Indian being Buddhism. And, and it's exactly when you meet when you, when you, when you uh, mix the Zoroastrian tradition, which is very phallic, and you mix the Buddhist tradition, which is very matrical, and when you mix the two, you actually get Dogshan. And, and the underrated period in the East, the golden age of this was the Kushan Empire. The Kushan Empire briefly, for a couple of hundred years, unified Northern India and Iran. It's really hard to unify India and Iran geographically because you've got a, a huge mountain range in between called the Hindu Kush, which makes the Alps very small by comparison. And that, that's exactly why that rarely happened. But it did happen for a couple hundred years. And briefly, Zoroastrianism and, and Buddhism were both state religions of the Kushan Empire. And this is funny, they're both state religions in peace. There's not a single recorded conflict between the two probably because they match each other perfectly. So you would go into a mode of, well, we can practice Zoroastrianism here, we can practice Buddhism here, and because one is phallic, the other one is magical, they're actually together tribal. They actually make sense for society as a whole. And I've never seen a conflict between the two. If, if you go, for example, to Afghanistan, where the Taliban's tried really hard to tear down the Buddhist statues. Mm -hmm. That is simply because the original religion of Afghanistan long before Islam arrived, was the mixture between Zoroastrianism and Buddhism because Afghanistan obviously is the culture where the Iranian and the Indian meet. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what they're interesting. That whole thing is then repeated when you get to China because Taoism is the unification of the phallic and the matrical. They call that yin and yang. That's exactly what Taoism is. So the Chinese tried to practice that under one roof as one religion, which also makes sense. Mm -hmm. You as a Zoroastrian or a Buddhist, you might as well be Taoist. Then you see the full picture. But then also, in China, they developed the Chan practices. They did not start in India. Zen did not originate in India and then went from India to China to Japan because there's no direct connection between India and China. Besides a few really brave Tibetan monks. I thought Bodhidharma came from for India to, to... No, 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 that's just fairy tale. Okay. okay, okay, again, learn from Aristotle to always check both sides of the coin mm -hmm. before you buy into any story. The Bodhidharma mythology in China, that he was an Indian prince arrived in China. We just look at the paintings that were done of Bodhidharma. No Indian looks like that. He's got these bosky big eyebrows, right? Bearded. Well, he looks like an Iranian. He doesn't look like an Indian, doesn't he? Okay. So, Bodhidharma, you, if you go to India, which you should, you'll discover that it's not a single taste of Bodhidharma anyway. And, you know, the, 
there wasn't a body harm in India ever. So he obviously was not only not Indian, he was certainly not an Indian prince. So then you go to Central Asia and you discover the Bodhidharma's origin is in Sogdia. Sogdia is a Persian kingdom in Central Asia along the Silk Route. Uh -huh, Bodhidharma was a trader. And because the monks taught the warriors to be traders historically, mm -hmm. you could also, as a trader, become a monk. That's exactly what Bodhidharma is. He was a Sogdan trader, arrived in Xi'an in China, which was the world's largest city at the time, and the Chinese connection to the Silk Route. And eventually then he established Chan, his teachings in China. And he never declared it was Buddhism. He probably applied Buddhism to it, or it was applied later, because to add some credibility to it. The way you hype something, the way you tell the story, that, well, this has a, like, a golden origin from somewhere, and because it has a golden origin somewhere, then it becomes more valuable. I mean, Moses never lived in Egypt, and the Hebrews never left Egypt for the Promised Land. But to make the Promised Land, which existed, the nation of Israel, more credible, of course, their origin was in Egypt because Egypt was uh -huh. the central power of the world. So that's why you created that mythology. Then if you go to Egypt and check the historical records, you don't see a single trace of Moses anywhere in Egyptian history. It was obviously made up, but still the mythology and the value of mythology yeah. is there. So Bodhidharma has his origin in Sogdia, and from Central Asia, he takes the Zoroastrian teachings with him to India, mixes them with the Buddhism that's already there, and certainly with the Taoism, and creates the Chan tradition, which is essentially the tantric version of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. That then moves on to Korea and eventually on to Japan and becomes Zen. And you discover it when you go to Japan and you walk into one of these beautiful Zen rock gardens. By the way, I'm terrible at Sasan too. I do walking meditation. The secret <laughs> okay. of Zen is that actually most meditation is done walking, not sitting. And I think Westerners should walk more rather than sit. So I do walking meditation when I practice Zen. But when you look into the Zen rock gardens of Japan, you discover that they're almost identical to the Zoroastrian fire temples that you find in Iran and Azerbaijan. Minimalism. Uh -huh. You got the rock garden. You got an asymmetric rock put inside the garden and you focus on the asymmetries because the spiritual isn't asymmetric. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, with the Zoroastrians in Iran. You put a fire at the center. The fire is always alive. And because of life, it adds an asymmetric element to the rest of the symmetry of the room. Everything is white. You've got the Atashbaram, which is a sacred fire at the center of the room. And you can sit there and meditate and meditate and meditate for hours. It's an environment created for intense, deep meditation. So Zoroastrianism and Zen are essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, interesting. The Vajrayana tradition is much more, let's say, um, colorful or uh, explosively uh, Baroque. Um, yeah. Well, that comes from Hinduism as well. So there you go, right? Yeah, that probably comes from Hinduism. Yeah, yeah it comes from Hinduism. And Hinduism is matrical as is Buddhism, and that comes out of India. I mean, if you want to study the strength of matriarchy and study the strength of magical storytelling, you can go to India to do that because the Indian landscape fosters it. Because permanent settlements, the dream about the permanent settlement, the ultimate female fantasy that we don't have to walk any longer, we no longer have to be nomads, the oasis has arrived and the oasis can support itself. So we can stay at the oasis. That was, that was first realized in India. You're giving me an insight into, let's say, let's say what you called uh, patriarchal and matriarchal storytelling, but also just the male principle and the female principle in general, yeah. right? And that's, that's sort of what I think Tantra is about, right? It's about yeah. the, the dynamics between them. Absolutely. The phallic mm. and the magical. Absolutely. Yeah. The balancing of the two. This is yin and yang and Taoism. And, and with Tantra, you practice that all the way. And the beauty when you study East Asia or South Asia, and, and, and you study where these ideas were developed fully and, and really went golden, you discover that the landscape itself provided that. Because it's in the river valleys of China and India, where you created the huge permanent settlements and agriculture blossomed. But it was in the mountainous areas, like Tibet and Iran, where you developed the other stories. So that's exactly why I always think now, when you study the East and learn the East, you should study as what I call the Silk Road Triad. 
and, and excluded Hinduism from the formula. That means the Silk Road tribe, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, and the relationship between the three and how they actually crossbreed over the, you know, over the centuries they crossbreed. There are no conflicts in between them. And that's exactly when traders who were either Taoist or Buddhist or Zoroastrian met, there were no conflicts in between them, but just the highest respect. Mm -hmm. That's exactly why the Silk Road worked as wonderfully as it did and why there wasn't a single case of warfare among the people who traded along the Silk Road. And when the Silk Road eventually fell apart, it was because of two external threats that were not involved in the trade, the mm -hmm. Mongol invasion and the epidemics. Mm -hmm. And the epidemics, of course, this is what we need to learn from is they traveled frequently and wildly along the Silk Road, like they do today when we fly from one country to the next. That's a threat of, of intense international traveling today. And also the Mongol invasion is like an external threat that doesn't understand the system. The Mongol invasion were nomad, they were nomads. And how the hell could they understand a culture of chained permanent settlements that traded with each other? They wouldn't understand that. And because they were sitting on horseback, they could just slaughter people without understanding what it was, until finally the Chinese tamed the Mongols, turned them into their own emperors, gave them China basically mm. to domesticate them so they could include them in civilization. Mm. The Mongol invasion is the ultimate example throughout history of children playing gods without even knowing. Wow. Incredibly destructive, incredibly destructive. You know, it's just, it's just they, they would surround cities along the Silk Road that had over a million citizens. I mean, along the Silk Road, it was so prosperous that six out of the seven biggest cities in the world in the 13th century were along the Silk Road, including the two biggest, which were the end of the Silk Road, Xi'an and Cairo. Mm -hmm. Xi'an and China, Cairo and Egypt were the two biggest cities in the world. The biggest city in China, the biggest city in the Middle East, way bigger than anything you found in Europe, right? So these, these were the ends of the Silk Road. And along the Silk Road, you had, for example, a city like Merv, in current Turkmenistan, that probably had a population of about 1.2 million people. This is in the mid 1200s. This is the mid 1200s, but Europe was in the dark ages or whatever. The Merv had 1.2 million people and it was surrounded in three or four days, the Mongols slaughtered everybody in the city in, in less than a few days, right? Mm -hmm. That is exactly what we need to learn from history is that when the, when the boys who play gods, the Mongols, not knowing they were boys who played gods, they were so high on their power, on, on, the, on their weaponry, on, on sitting on these horsebacks, being able to slaughter that many people so quickly. Basically, interpreting the, the, the citizens of Merv as idiots, probably. Mm -hmm. Mostly women and children to begin with. They just slaughtered them. They just slaughtered them. They, they found a reason to do that and just did that. And this is what we have to learn from history. So back to Tantric. <laughs> Yeah, I have something. Can I just uh, say something? Something you, you wrote. You said Tantra as the ultimate exercise in moving from child to adult. Yes. That's the way she, which is the exact opposite of taking a course in how to improve your sex life to get more out of life. This is not about you exploiting your resources. This is not about you exploiting other people. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very childish understanding of what sexuality should be. So adult sexuality is very much about serving the other. Yeah. And, and serving the other by not coming, for example, it's just, it's just the not coming part is actually minor, but it's just there to remind us that if we don't behave like children, but actually behave as adults, the rewards we get are so rich and so beautiful. That is really worth learning that exercise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why do you say it's minor? It is minor, but, but it's, very often when you have to talk to Western people and describe these things, you just have to go to their everyday life. You have to connect somewhere. And since they understand that coming too quickly, for example, or, or you know, especially for men, men discover that they think their sex life is gonna be about three minute episodes. Yeah. It's the gratification. Women at least understand because it takes them a while to get started. And once they get started, they wanna stay on for quite a while. So the guys discover that women leave me, they get tired of me because I basically exploit them. Maybe I should learn to employ sex with women instead. Meaning that if you can learn at least have sex for an hour or so, the women are way more likely to be pleased with you and stay. So it's very often the guy who thinks that he has to learn to have sex more the way women want it to be because then he'll get more out of it. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah. it doesn't understand that he's just taking a very boyish attitude to his male genital organs. But the boyish attitude might be like trying to please the mother, you mean, somewhat. No, no, no. Well, no, I, no, actually, I think by making mother happy, mm-hmm. you actually kickstart the urge to make the woman pleased. Mm-hmm. So it is precisely by, by the desire from the boy when he's a boy to making mother happy. I start there in my time of teaching. I start, you tried to make mother happy when you were a boy, didn't you? And if your mother was happy, you made her laugh all the time. You were a very happy boy, weren't you? That's kind of a training exercise for you as a man to make the woman pleased. Because if the woman is pleased, you've done your job. And she will stay with you and she'll give birth to your children. And you have the woman of your life. So you have to learn these things. Um, so rather, it is the getting the grown-up man away from the boyish desire for instant gratification. Because the child says, I want it, and I want it now. And the reason why the child does that is that we're spoiled with that the first year of life with the tit. Mm-hmm. So in our work, we call this the mamilla. Yeah. The mamilla, the first year of life, is that your mother's tit is constantly there for you. So whenever you scream, she'll give it to you. Yeah. This is where instant gratification has to work, the first year of your life. But after you turn one year old and you get away from the tit and the phallic intrusion happens and, and you want to go towards the phallic and you get this desire inside of you want to be grown up one day, you start to imitate your parents, start to imitate the grown ups, and you have this desire, yeah, I want to be grown up one day. That is childhood. But then already you, you make the first move away from instant gratification mm-hmm. and you then have to learn as a child, no, you're not going to get everything exactly when you want. You can't just, just stand there and scream and you get it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly why the welfare state is so you know, destructive for society. That's exactly why the whole idea of universal basic income today is incredibly destructive. It's because it gives you this kind of cosmic tit to suck on. Exactly. What we don't need is the, we need Tantra, right? We need that. We don't need the great tit. And and Tantra isn't instant, isn't more and more and more. Well, it is pleasure, but it's also stepping back from pleasure and, and, and not, trying to grab it or, or allowing it to sort of become a bigger wave or, or something like that. Yeah, the word for that is libido. And the and yeah. libido means that, for example, when I work today, I'm going to study our sister's new book today, and I'm going to study some stuff over here. I got some Tibetan stuff to study today. And I get pleasure of studying this today and working on this. I get pleasure having a conversation with Andrew and Zoom. I do things that I enjoy. I wake up in the morning. I follow my own lust and passion. But I then tame the lust and the passion into thinking, okay, how can I keep this going for 10 hours? How can I enjoy my work today for 10 hours rather than just for 30 minutes? Mm-hmm. And I do that precisely by not trying to exploit the pleasure, but rather yeah. to even it out and employ it. Mm-hmm. So it can stay for 10 hours. So you practice this in everything you do. Your entire life, you practice it when you wake up in the morning. How can I find lust and passion to begin with, which is finding the libido? Yeah. Okay. Start from there and then keep the libido going over the whole, whole, yeah. whole day. And this that's, that's a, a full-bodied right? full libido rather than a genitally obsessed libido. Yeah, you, you take yeah. the energy, if you like to call it energy, you take the libido from your cock or from your pussy, from the genital area, and you just basically move it up into your head, and you get exactly the same thing. You get a heightened sense of awareness and a heightened sense of existence. Mm-hmm. And that is the definition of libido, that within you that wants to live. Now, to, 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 to uh-huh. Sigmund Freud, the fundamental drive is more Tito, which is, you know, the, the drive within us that wants the organic to become inorganic, that wants us to die one day. And mm-hmm. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do even more work on this. I find it incredibly interesting what we call the dialectics between libido and martyrdom, which is yeah. deep philosophy, right? So we wanna stay in the libido while we are alive. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm not a Buddhist in the sense that I don't wanna reach that state of non-desire while I'm alive, work on it, because as a Zoroastrian, I believe I'm gonna get it anyway, and I get it the day I die. Enlightenment arise today, I die. Mm-hmm. You know, perfection arise today, you die. Because you're, you're firmly perfected the day you die. Your life history is then complete and it's, it's, it stays as memory in the universe for the rest of existence. Mm-hmm. You're gone. But everything you did, your entire life, 
is, according to quantum information theory, stuck in the universe and will stay there. You are perfected or you're whole. That is enlightenment. So you, you've accomplished your life. Your life has been full. You, you've lived your life. No matter how long or short it was, you've lived your life and it's over. But okay. while you are alive, while, while your body wakes up in the morning, your heart beats and your brain starts thinking and all those things and your cock gets hard now and then, that is being alive and that is what's called libido. And why we chose the title Digital Libido for the book is essentially it's libido in the digital age. Now, how are we going to tame, tantrically tame, domesticate this liminal force today, mm -hmm. meaning it's essentially a book on self-edics. So mm -hmm. how do you live a life as a human? A book on what? What was the word you used? Self-edics. Your edith, ed, ethical principles apply self -ethics. on Self-ethics. Okay, ethics. Self-ethics, self -ethics, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so that, that, is what, that is what Tantra is. It, it yeah. is a very individual or, or very personal journey towards controlling your desires, mm -hmm. bring them into your mind, into your senses, Mm -hmm. and live fully alive and follow your lust and passion. Yeah. So you're talking about the energy moving up. Yeah. Uh, the, it also has to go down too, right, though? I With mean, a lot of people, it just goes up, people, yeah. people, I think, have, have uh, you know, brain damage from bringing everything too, too, too much up and, and not, not being grounded. Yeah, exactly. When I do men's work, I tell the guys, it's very simple. You've got a dick in your head and you hopefully have a dick between your legs. Okay. Some guys that got self-confidence to dig between the legs. Okay, great. Then they really want to be seen as more intelligent than they think they are. Mm -hmm. And they very often are. So you just basically take that energy upwards and you move it into their mind and you look at their everyday life and that's where they have their problems. So they go chasing girls all the time. They go to nightclubs several times a week. They take too much drugs, they drink too much alcohol, and their lives are getting pretty destructive because as they're getting older, they can't maintain this lifestyle and they get into a personal crisis. And then I just said, it's just because you're still stuck with the dick between your leg all the time. We're going we're gonna to move that libido of yours up into your mind. You've got to learn how to live in your mind so that your everyday life becomes more meaningful and you can stop chasing the girls and you can stop the drinking and you can stop doing the drugs and actually have lust and passion in your everyday life. That is tantric. Okay? The other way around all exists. A lot of guys come through the door. They're too much in their heads. Yeah. And, and they basically see themselves as AB people, meaning that they got A, which is above the throat, right? Yeah. Then they got B beneath the throat, which they have gone degenerate about. So they very often have weight problems. They don't exercise enough. They don't take care of themselves. They eat the wrong things. And they just try to forget there's anything beneath here, beneath the neck, right? So you see that. You see that in their behavior. And you just go, okay, we're going to put you through some easy exercise. You're going to learn to take care of yourself. You're going to start eating the right things. We're eventually going to teach you actually to be more sexual than you've been so we can take on the entire body because as a human being, you're body and mind. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, to, to live a full life, you're going to have a full-on body and a full-on mind. And that is exactly what you learn in Tantra. Mm -hmm. Right. Indeed. Yeah. Mm. At least in real Tantra. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Perhaps it might be useful to talk about what is not real Tantra because it seems to be a lot of, Osho had this thing called Neo-Tantra and he yeah. thought that Western people were very, very repressed, right? And which yeah. is perhaps true. Uh, and that they needed all of these sexual and s somatic techniques. Uh, and, uh, and he called that Neo-Tantra because he said it wasn't the real Tantra. So. Uh, well, it, it's, I, I like Osho. He's very useful, but you can't stop just reading Osho and then discover the whole thing because he, as many philosophers do, mm -hmm. they're a commentary on the time within which they live. And this, of yeah. course, when the West experimented wildly in the 1960s with sexual liberation. And Osho came onto the scene. He was a very clever guy, an Indian guy, who figured out where America and Europe were heading. And he could just tap into that. But... Obviously, yeah. the problem with the entire Osho cult was that yeah. it was very infantile. Ah, uh, yeah. Very naive. Mm -hmm. That's exactly why it fell apart. So that, that was what the problem was. That was the, what was the problem is this is infant, infantilization. Inf infantilization. It, it yeah. just promised all the kids you can get everything you want. Essentially, Osho became the great tit again. Uh-huh. What yeah. he didn't realize, or at least what it did, is that he basically promised you could get all this sexual fulfillment 
and be spiritually awakened, like if you were, you know, the adult of all the adults, mm -hmm. and he promised it for instant gratification. Yeah. Which is not the way it works. That's exactly why Osho did not take on in India. Uh -huh. Even when Osho moved and left America and he moved eventually to, to India and, and set up shop there in Pune, and they still got the Osho Center there, that's still Westerners all go there and they buy into a very touristy version of, of spiritual India, which really the Indians don't care too much about. That itself should speak volumes about the way you should look at it. Now, I've got mm -hmm. lots of friends who've done Osho and I respect yeah, yeah. them highly. Raphael Morgan in the UK is one of my dearest friends. He's a, he's a great spiritual teacher, but he's also come out of Osho, obviously on the other side and learned more and, and understands that there's more to it. But yeah. Osho was so popular with young Westerners, especially in America, because essentially promised them spiritual enlightenment and sexual uh, satisfaction. Yeah. Instantly. Yeah. And that's Which why, that, that's why that community became so dark, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Osho was naive. He pulled in the psychopaths and the sociopaths into his own cult. And that's exactly why it fell apart. I mean, if, if, you, if you check the story of Osho, for example, in Oregon, where they set up their community, they did not at all communicate with the surrounding world and become friends with the local community. They were enemies yeah. of the local community. It was more or less yeah. civil war in Oregon while they were still yeah. there. Yeah, that's right. So that speaks volumes to me about the infantility of the organization itself. And in infantile organizations, like, say, the German Nazi party, yeah. you're going to have the boys and girls who think they're gods running the show. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what happened to our show. Thank God they didn't have an atomic bomb because they probably were blown up America at the time when that happened. Uh -huh. Watch out for the sects and cults. Yeah. Because the sets and cults will always promise you that you can get spiritually enlightened. And because you get spiritually enlightened, you can sleep with anybody you want and you can do it instantly. When in reality, spiritual enlightenment is removing yourself from sleeping with anybody you want or having sex all the time or coming all the time and having instant gratification from your own body. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of that. Coming too quickly is, right? Mm-hmm. No, we need to get away from that. And I think what is happening now, um, and Jordan Peterson certainly helped open that door, Kamal Pagla has done it for years, is that uh, we're learning now that we have to stop being infantile. And, and, and it's crushing because we thought the digital itself, when it arrived in the 1990s in a big way, would give us everything we wanted instantly. But then we discovered we'd all become exhibitionists. Mm -hmm. We were all looking for the phallic gaze to look at us and tell us how good we were. Yeah. But we were all screaming. I mean, the internet eventually became, or still is today, it's just one huge cuckoo's nest of 7 billion people screaming at the top of the lungs for attention. Mm -hmm. When attention is the highest value. Yeah. Because nobody so, gets it. So, in a way, the dark side of the internet is like the Osho cult, in a way. I, that makes me yeah, draw, exactly. draw the connection between the two. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah, that's what, writing, that's what we write in Digital Libido. We say that we thought that digital was like the perfect father who would always look at us and always give us attention for any little mediocre thing we did. It's essentially, when you look at these Instagram accounts today, they're all like six-year-olds who just made a tiny little painting and held it up to us and think we're all going to say, oh, you're damn Picasso. Yeah. But the hard-learned lesson is that the six-year-old shows that picture to his mother, right? And the mother then with her motherly love, because she has the tip, will say, oh, that's a good picture. You're such a good painter. Mm -hmm. And you think you're Picasso, right? And then you, the, what's lacking is the phallic gaze. And the phallic gaze tells you, but you did that in two seconds, didn't you? You're not lying down Picasso because you made a drawing in two seconds. Yeah. If you have any kind of talent, any potential, anything close to Picasso one day, to begin with, you've got to work for a hundred hours. Yeah. Well, you, have, you have to do, learn all the classical techniques before you can take take them apart, right? I mean, yeah. So the real digital that will hit us probably now, beginning in the twenty twenties, is gonna be this awfully hard lesson of suddenly being confronted with memory because digital is that everything is memorized, meaning everything is there. The fact check will be enormous, and it's not really phallic. It really is the real matriarch we're talking about here, the ultimate shit test of humanity. 
of the oldest woman in the tribe. It's like the oldest woman in the tribe will now step up to us mm-hmm. and say, everything is to be memorized. A wall of facts will hit us. Hmm. You can't get away with bullshit any longer. Can you explain that in a bit more depth? I'm not sure I, I get it. That's what the technology really is. Because we always project our little childish fantasies on anything new that happens to us. And that's exactly what the internet did to us. And even Silicon Valley fell for it. Silicon Valley also has the very infantile fantasy of what digital is. Mm-hmm. And people like Mark Stallman in New York and me in Stockholm and a few other thinkers out there who have actually studied, you know, done the deep studies and know what the ancients told us and can realize that this is probably one huge misunderstanding and just a childish hope of instant gratification. That's exactly what got MySpace. But MySpace failed. Now, shouldn't you have asked yourself already back then why MySpace failed? Because then you've learned the lesson of why Facebook is failing us now. And why Instagram is going to fail us next. It's like we don't learn the lesson, do we? Well, because there's why no did, content. Is, is that, there's no... Why did MySpace fail? Well, I used to work in the music industry before MySpace hit us in the 1990s. And I knew yeah. exactly what MySpace was. It's like... All these crappy, mediocre demo tapes that were sent to the record company that we put in a potato sack at the end of the office because we hated it that much. Suddenly, all these guys who sent all these demo tapes got access to a new medium where they put all their shit out there. Yeah. And of course, they expected to be discovered. They were longing for the phallic gaze to walk in through the door and tell them, oh, you've been discovered. You're so amazing. You're so talented. The whole world wants to he- hear your music. And you know what? You did this music in three minutes. Whoa, you must be Mozart, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all this shit was put out there. And then, because nobody wanted to listen to it, people pretended they were listening to it. And it's very American. This whole attitude is like, I scratch your back, then you scratch mine. Meaning that I pretend that I spend time listening to your shit music. So you pretend you're listening to my shit music so we can fool the third person who's naive to actually listen to our shit music. And you knew it with MySpace the moment people started writing, thank you for the ad. What the fuck does that mean? Mm-hmm. Thank you for the ad. Why would I thank you for my ad? Because if I add you, Andrew, I'm adding you in a social media platform to tell the third person that you and I know each other. Why would you thank me for that? Oh, you would only thank me for that if you didn't know me and you pretended you knew me because you're gonna fool the third person through our marketing that we actually listen to each other's shit. Yeah. This is the entire internet today. Well, that's that's what, uh, who is this philosopher who wrote the book called On Bullshit? Uh, Is it Harry something or other? It's just bullshit, right? Yeah, exactly. It's endless bullshit. bullshit. It is bullshit. And when a child shows the little painting they made in two minutes to you, you basically, you don't tell the child that it's bullshit, but if you're the good father, you tell the child, you know what, if you spend 10 minutes on the next drawing instead of three minutes, it'll probably be better. Right. Yeah, so this is, is, again... That is what Tantra is. This is, again, that might be Tantra, but that's also also the critical aspect of, of... our minds and of, of, of the masculine, which is so taboo in a narcissistic American society is that you can't be critical about everything. You have to be nice to everybody. It's like, but in this, but in this very fake sort of way, you can't, can't, and that isn't, that's what, I guess what Chogum Trimpa called idiot compassion. You know, he had this. Yeah. Americans do not have friends. Americans have acquaintances. That's what the Facebook friend is at best an acquaintance. And very often it turns out it's just fake acquaintance even. It's got nothing to do with friendship. And it's a very, very childish fantasy. It's like you long for the phallic case. You long for the father to see you with his stern but loving eyes. Mm -hmm. Meaning you long for the fact, you long for somebody to first look at reality and then look back at you. And when they look back at you, they can judge you according to reality. You long for the father case, but you don't want the father, right? Yeah. Because he's scary. No, you cannot separate the father from the father case. Yeah. You cannot separate phallus from the phallic case. You, that's exactly what we, we don't even call it absent father syndrome yeah. in our work because that, then you think that not too many, there are not enough fathers around the children. No, because the fathers are not even fathers. Yeah. Well, tantric deities, for example, are always represented as wrathful. And one, and also, uh, you know, benevolent and, and beautiful and kind. And there's always a, there's always both sides to that. 
Um, yeah, it's not like oh, there's always both sides. There's there's the there's let's say there's the the, the you know the, the the generous compassion and and, and loving gaze, and then there's the the fierce wrathful uh, gaze, which you know destroys what needs to be destroyed. I mean, because yeah, it's, we, because we, it's we garbage. Call, you know, it's yeah. like uh, we we call them we call them the magical gaze, and we call them the phallic gaze. So the magical yeah. gaze is hopefully the first thing that meets you when you're born. You just went through the biggest trauma you ever gonna go through. That's exactly why you can't remember your birth. But mm -hmm. thankfully, when you get out, you see the wife, the midwife's face. It's usually a grandmother, right? It's not your mother. It's the mother of your mother. Then you learn wisdom for the first time. So the mother of your mother, the midwife, meets you with her gaze. And that is the smile of the, the beautiful smile of this older woman who looks at you and says, welcome to the world. You're born, right? Yeah. That gaze gives you unrequited love it gives you unconditional love. It gives you love beyond love. Okay. Right. You need that as a start. Then introduces you to the mamilla. She then brings you to the mother's tip. And you can suck the milk. And, and for the first, during the first year of life, it's absolutely essential. Yeah. But after... Because you're completely vulnerable at that point. You're, you're, exactly. You're, you're, you're in a state of kind of. absolute total vulnerability, right? And the, mother, the mother's body, the whole body and the mind of the mother is completely focused on when you scream, you get what you want. When you scream, you get what you want. This is where instant gratification belongs. But once you turn one year old and the phallic intrusion has happened, the grown-up world has entered your world, the, the literally your father's penis, the mother looks at and he has something you don't have. That kickstarts the whole journey during childhood towards adulthood. And that is when the tantric starts. So the question then is, what is it that Phallus has that I don't have? And it's always the same answer, Tantra. Mm -hmm. It's always the same answer. Dad can control himself. And because he can control himself, he gets mother. Mother can control herself in front of father. Oh, that's how it works. Because she can control herself in front of him. And he can control himself in front of her. He goes out and he gets the deliveries done. And because he gets the deliveries done, she can eat. And because she can eat, she gave me the milk. Then you learn how things work. You learn the interdependencies between human beings. And the child is fascinated with this. The fair tales we tell the children are all about how these interdependencies are both enormously productive and very dangerous if they're misunderstood. This is the, this is the lesson the child has to learn. And that's exactly why childhood is so long. It goes all the way up until teens. And then we do the teenage rebellion, which is the rebellion against the phallus because you have to become phallic yourself. Whether you're a girl who's become a woman or you're a boy who has to become a man, you have to understand it. So biology starts. It starts with the genitals first. That's the teenage rebellion. And it's completed when you brought it up into your head. And that's when you do the rite of passage. The initiation. Um, I, I read somewhere that, that adults like the brain comes into full development at like age 23 or something. Uh, exactly. I thought, you thought it was exactly. much younger. That's why 22 year olds and 20 year olds are not fully there yet. No, no but we're clever when we give them the, 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 when we give, what we give them at about 22, 23, it's the last thing the elders, not the parents, the elders give to you after the initiation ritual. And that is if you, if you manage after the initiation ritual to support yourself, which is the fundamental aspect of being grown up, okay? You can support yourself. Then you're being rewarded. And you're being rewarded by the elders by pointing it towards your archetype, which is pointing it towards what kind of man, what kind of woman, or for that matter, what kind of androgynous person you are. So you get your specific archetype, how you're going to serve the community, and then you're giving a mentor, mm -hmm. an older uncle or an older aunt or something like that, that points you towards where you're going so they can guide you in that direction. Somebody who is that archetype already, that is the mentorship, that is the teacher you get in the tribe after say 23, all the way into your early 30s. And then you're ready for the rituals, ready for the sexuality. Then you're ready to become a parent and then you're ready to support others. You're fully grown up. This whole journey has to work. Yeah. And maybe every it's, single part of it has to, has to be there, right? Um, yeah. I, I, know, I know that personally, when you talk about that, I think about this kind of happening to me, but not in a, a conscious, in a conscious way. It's like it, all of these processes sort of have to happen to you. Yeah. And they have and, to happen at those they, stages. They can That's either what... happen consciously or they can happen through trial and error and, and uh, you know, just what, where your unconscious mind takes you or does that make any sense? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if the phallic intrusion doesn't happen, that is the ultimate disaster. If you don't leave the tit and hate the tit from that moment on, if that doesn't happen, the Oedipus complex or the Electra complex, that doesn't happen at one year of age, you become infantilized. And what we point out in digital libido is that when we talk about an obesity epidemic in America today, that's not an epidemic. That's, that's, that is, if anything, an epidemic of infantilization. Every damn grown-up person oh, yeah. who's gone obese and can't stop yeah. eating is a child. That's clear, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's infantile. Just stop eating. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's the first thing you learn in Tantra. The first thing that happens to people going Tantra is they stop being fat. You know, the, the first thing you see, you see weight loss on a dramatic scale with people who go into Tantra. The first thing they learn is basically take care of yourself to begin with before you even touch your genital organs. You know, and... And, 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 and the weight losses that happen, they just come automatically when you do that because you realize that this is a journey towards your own adulthood. So if you, if you go into Tantra believing that I'm going to get more sex, I'm going to get laid more, and, you know, the first thing you learn is that no, it's not about you not coming. It's about the learning to actually control your own drives and desires and make them serve you and then hopefully also make them serve your sexual partners and hopefully make them serve the team that you work with and people around you. And eventually one day you might even have a family because of it. Mm-hmm. So I guess one, one definition we could come up with for Tantra is, you know, a kind of uh, education of service, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you arrive there. And, and that's what you love when you make love to somebody is that you know, that, oh, it's not about my pleasure. It's about the other person's pleasure. It's about, it's about uh, giving the other person pleasure. It, 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 it's called, it, you could call it pleasure plus. I prefer to call it enjoyment plus, right? It's, it's like, it's not my enjoyment it's about. It's about the other person's enjoyment it's about. Making somebody else happy, making somebody else satisfied. Yeah. you know, is ultimately what sexuality is about. That's the beauty of it. And, and that journey moves you into the realm of adult pleasure rather than the childish pleasure of, I want this and I want it now. Yeah, just I getting, want the ice cream now. I want getting, the- getting your rocks off or something like that. Or, yeah, exactly. As the expression goes, you know. Mm. Yeah. 